trusting in Jesus. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Who here has that lesson completely learned? Such a simple thing that a child can do it. But such a deep truth that the most seasoned saint still has lessons that he can learn. It's a phrase with a meaning that transcends culture. Transcends circumstance. Wherever you're at, there's a need for you to learn to trust in Jesus in new and different ways today. About six months ago, maybe eight, we started making plans for a trip to go see the Petros. And uh, you know that man named Murphy who comes to visit your house every once in a while. You know, the closer the deadline gets, the more stuff goes haywire. So I cannot recall to you all the things that have broken in my house in the last three days as I prepare to hop on a plane for a you know, 25-hour flight on Wednesday. And Marcy's going, you can get all this fixed before you go, right? Sweetheart, just trust Jesus. It didn't work. There's more serious issues than a water heater failing or the trash compactor in your sink not working. There's end-of-life issues. There's illness. There's uh, wayward children. There, are, there is unfaithfulness in marriage. And what does it mean to trust Jesus? We'll answer that question a little bit today in a very short segue between Jesus' miracle stories. And so, if you've been following along as we've walked through the Gospel of Matthew, you're very aware that uh, last week we saw Jesus display awesome power over sickness. He healed a leper. He healed a centurion servant from a great distance. And he healed a unsolicited, made an unsolicited healing for Peter's mother-in-law. Today... We'll see that Jesus doesn't just have power over sickness. He has power and authority over his disciples. So as the story this morning unfolds, we'll see two hopeful disciples back off on their commitment to follow Christ. And it will lead us to what I think is a very sobering question this morning. What is it that keeps you from following Christ right now? He's calling you to something. Are you choosing to obey? Or like the two disciples we'll watch this morning, do you, do you decide to just kind of back off a little bit? So we'll be in Matthew chapter 8, and we're just going to look at verses 18 through 22. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, it's on page 686 in the uh, Pew Bible in front of you. And I think it's very interesting because all of Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9 are a series of miracle stories. And they, they happen in triplets. So last week we looked at the leper, the centurion, and Peter's mother-in-law. And then next week we'll look at another series of three miracles. And then there will be another scene in the story where Jesus talks about discipleship again. And then he concludes by talking about these miracle stories as well. And so the timing in which Matthew talks about this incident is interesting. Because this entire section of the gospel is filled with miracles. And Matthew intentionally interrupts the flow of the story here, to talk about Jesus' interaction with some of his followers. And I think the reason for it is this. There is the uh, temptation. If this story had continued in an uninterrupted series of healings, 
that the church might be led to believe that that's her primary calling, to comfort, to nurture, to console, to heal. And the discipleship stories in the midst of the miracles remind us that our chief mission is to be his disciples. As his disciples, we may be called upon to heal, to console, to comfort, but we are always, always to listen and obey. Being his disciple, you know this, while it is truly a blessing, it's not always easy. Jesus' love is indeed tender, but as Lord, his love is also tough. He tells us what to do. So as we look at this passage this morning, what happens to these two men? Well, look with me at Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. Jesus is in Capernaum, and as we saw last week, he had just healed Peter's mother-in-law. Verse 18, when Jesus saw large crowds around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. The story begins with an announced departure. Jesus has been busy uh, in the journey from where he preached the Sermon on the Mount to uh, Peter's house. He had engaged in three healings. There was drama. There was human interest. There was brokenness. There was lack of hope. Jesus has been busy. He's weary. And the problem for him is that the more healing he does, the more attention he draws. This is very early in Jesus' ministry. And so one of the things that we see is as the crowds come, he leaves. He makes a strategic retreat. Now, as we'll see next week, he has an appointment on the other side of the lake, and he needs to get from point A to point B. But as he is packing up, it seems that this occasion to travel prompts some people to presume to be included in his inner circle. Hey, you only got room for 12 guys on that boat? Count me in. I want to be there. So the first man to come to him is recorded in verse 19. And this is a relatively unique interaction. Verse 19 says, A scribe, a teacher, approached him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, what's unique about this? It's a scribe. It's a Jewish teacher of the law who is following Jesus. Wow, I thought Jewish leaders didn't like Jesus. What in the world is happening here? And, and look at how the, how the scribe refers to Jesus. Teacher. Certainly this is high praise. He's not some itinerant, you know, uh, um, man of no circumstance. He recognizes him as a teacher. And as we think through what we know about the scribes and the religious leaders... These guys were educated. They were influential. Their vote counted for more. They were intellectuals. And most of them would have been at least a little bit reluctant to follow an uneducated rabbi. Here's the thing that's interesting. Is Jesus a teacher? That's a trick question here a little bit. Because what the man says, while it is indeed accurate, it is not adequate. Yes, Jesus is a teacher, 
but he is so much more than that. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it is interesting to note that every time Jesus is given the title teacher, it is given by those who do not fully trust him. So is this high praise for a scribe to be following Jesus, to call him teacher? If you're weary, you have good intuition. Something is not adding up just right. It looks good on the outside, but there's something that we need to put together. Because given his position in society, there are a couple things I think we can figure out about this passage. Do you see the way, it's just one sentence, but did you see the way that the scribe spoke? A scribe, verse 19, approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. It's all about him. Did Jesus call him? Did Jesus ask him a question? No. It's all about him. I'm going to follow you. And it's almost as like he's telling Jesus, you know what, J-Man? This is your lucky day. You know, because I kind of look around here and, um, you know, you're a teacher, Jesus. And guess what? I happen to be one too. And, and as I look around at your ragtag bunch of followers, you got a bunch of stinky fishermen. I just raised the IQ of your group 3,000%. Aren't you lucky to have me? teach puts himself essentially on the same level as the man that he's saying he's going to follow he announces the fact i'm going to follow you he doesn't request consideration while he's willful i don't think at this point there's any need to doubt this man's sincerity as a matter of fact i think he was as sincere in his followership, as Peter was in his denial that he would ever betray Christ. Peter was pretty sincere, wasn't he? I will never do it. He did it. And I think the scribe meant the things that he was promising. But upon further investigation, he walks away from the opportunity. We'll see that his intentions prove to be less than honorable. Well, the truth is that Jesus is certainly not as impressed with this man as he is impressed with himself. That happens. And one of the things that's interesting is while the man comes up and says to Jesus, I will follow you, Jesus doesn't actually respond to the man's statement. It's kind of like he just randomly cracks open a fortune cookie and makes a statement. He, he says a proverb. But look what he does. It says, verse 20, Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The scribe kind of scratches his head. What kind of response is that? A fortune cookie answer? You repeat a proverb to me? What has Jesus done? He simply reminded this volunteer about the demands of discipleship that he'd obviously never considered. Jesus is not so desperate for followers that he jumps at every half-willing person. Sure, Jesus will beg for people to be reconciled, but he does not lower the standard 
of belief uniquely and totally in him. He doesn't lower the standard for holiness to say, you know what? Yeah, you're going to get in by the skin of your teeth. No, we all get in by the blood of, of, of God's son. And he's not so willing to take half-hearted followers. So what is it that he says? Despite the fact that he is God incarnate, despite his divine authority that he's shown in healing all kinds of people, self-indulgence is not in his plans. To turn his phrase another way, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What's he say? That he has fewer creature comforts than the critters he's created. Foxes have holes. I don't have a hole. I don't know any property. I don't have a house. I don't even carry a cot. I don't have a sleeping bag. I'm completely dependent upon people's hospitality. So scribe, Mr. Intellectual, Mr. PhD, who's obviously impressed with your education and your standing in society, is that what you want if you're going to follow me? Jesus is not penniless. As we continue through the gospel, we'll see that there are many followers that essentially gave of their life saving to contribute to his mission. When he feeds the 5,000, he says, hey, we got enough in the bank for y'all to buy food for him? Obviously, they had some resource for him to make a suggestion like that. There were followers even from Herod's court, politicians, courtiers who followed him and contributed out of their great resources. He's not penniless, but he is homeless, and his mission keeps him moving. So basically, to this disciple, this would-be disciple, who comes up and says, I will follow you, Jesus says, if you follow me, I'm all you get. I'm all you get. He doesn't promise comfort. He doesn't promise material provision. He promises himself. And as you think about friends, loved ones, neighbors who don't follow Jesus, Isn't there a temptation to say, if you follow Jesus, you get Jesus and your best life now? And nothing bad will ever happen to you? If you follow Jesus, everything will work out just right for you. Everything will be well. You'll be blessed. And Jesus says, you can't make that promise. I am what you get. So scribe, if there's something else you're trying to get out of following me, give up now. What is your motivation? What happens? This is the end of the story for this man. We don't ever hear anything about him again. Verse 20, Jesus makes his comment. Scribe, never heard from again. Sadly, he disappears without a comment, without a rebuttal, without an explanation. He didn't ask a question. There was no discussion. He just leaves. And isn't this surprising after his boisterous comment, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus shares a proverb. The man hangs his head and he disappears. And what's recorded in him of history is the fact that he didn't follow when he said that he would. 
You see, I think what's happened here is this man was committed to the wonder of it all, but not to the works. He was obviously committed to Jesus as a teacher, but not as Lord. He saw the crowds. He saw the miracles. He saw the enthusiasm and said, how good would it be to associate with the man in the middle of it all? He craved attention and glory. So when Jesus started talking about sacrifice, it just wasn't quite so cool to be with Jesus anymore. It's a party on the front end. Man, this is going to be awesome. And then what you talking about, Jesus? No house? Jesus didn't even ask him to sell all that he had. He did that to someone else, didn't he? What did he tell the guy? If you're with me, we're camping. Not sell all you have and give your body to be burnt and be, be willing to be a martyr. It's simply, I don't have a place to stay. But yet, the cost for him was so high that his reaction proves our first point. That for some would-be disciples... Possessions do indeed keep them from Christ. Now, we don't know that he was greedy for sordid gain. We don't know that he was trying to line his pockets. But when Jesus talks about home and where you hang your hat and where you lay your head, he walks away. The scribe was prepared to follow. He wasn't prepared to count the cost or to sacrifice. He's eager, all right. But he's certainly not eager for the right things. I love this quote. It says, such a person sees the soldiers parading, sees their fine uniforms, and sees their glittering arms and is eager to join, but forgets the exhausting marches, the bloody battles, and the unmarked graves. Man, it's cool to be in the army in a time of peace when everything looks fine and the buttons are spit shine and the shoes you can see your reflection in and the swords gleam. Soldiers march for a purpose, to engage in warfare and to sacrifice. A second man comes along, and his issue is quite different. He's called, as we'll see here, another of the disciples. Look at how he is reported in verses 21 and 22. Lord, that's a step up from teacher. Lord, another of his disciples said, let me uh, first... Let me go bury my father. Jesus responds directly to his comment. Jesus told him, follow me. And let the dead bury their own dead. Who is this guy? Who's telling people who are wanting to come up and follow him. Not so fast. Not so fast. Fast. He's called another of the disciples, which implies that both he and the scribe were in some way connected to Jesus. Now, this is very early in Jesus' ministry. So the word disciple, yes, it means follower, but it doesn't mean the same thing that we will see in just a few weeks when Jesus calls the twelve disciples. Okay? These men were followers, but they weren't fully committed. They were in the crowd that generally was going in Jesus' direction but it's a loose attachment. They've signed a prenuptial with Jesus. He doesn't do anything they like. Oh, you know it's going to happen. If the first man, the scribe, was too ready and too quick and promising, this one is too unready and too slow. 
The scribe needed to be reminded that sacrifices were necessary. This man needed to be reminded that distractions weren't acceptable. Christ must be first. And what was the distraction in this man's life? It reads a little odd in English, but they they do this on purpose because the emphasis in the Greek is put on the first word. What's the first word? Lord, another of his disciples said, first, first, let me go bury my father. He could have said, can I have to the end of the week? You're first, but second, I have an obligation here. You see, he had made a value statement. He displayed his priorities by saying, Jesus, you're clearly second. Lord, first, I need to do something else. First, I don't need to follow. And this highlights the second issue. For some would-be disciples, it's not possessions, it's paternity that keeps them from Christ. Men, what would you want your sons to do in this situation? Would you want them to display their faithfulness to you at the cost of displaying their faithfulness to Christ? I hope not. Certainly God calls us to honor our mother and father. But there are extraordinary times where we have to make our priorities clear. And in this situation, his responsibilities to his father choked out his commitment to Christ. Now what's interesting about the story is that the father may not even be dead. In Mideastern society, still to this day, if someone wants out of a commitment, they say, let me bury my father, meaning a.k.a. he's healthy right now. <laughs> and when I get my inheritance, and he's dead, and I'm kind of free, maybe 20 years down the road, I'll follow you. I can't tell you the conversations that I have with young people that say, you know what, Jesus is pretty cool. But he demands a lot. And so I'm going to be young and have fun. And I'll follow him later. I understand the sentiment. Just question the wisdom. We see that Jesus responds directly to this man. And basically he says two things. You see it in verse 22. Jesus told him, follow me. And... Let the dead bury their own dead. Now this is interesting. He didn't give the scribe any encouragement, did he? He just repeated the proverb about homelessness. To this man, Jesus issues a call. He summons him. He says, follow me. Why did Jesus turn away the eager scribe and summon the half-hearted I think there's a variety of reasons. On a real practical level, Jesus has already issued the order to go. Get the boats ready. Pack them up. If you want to follow me, the time is now. Get in 
the vote. Secondly, he called him Lord. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. So following him means doing whatever he commands without qualification, consideration, uh, condition, or reservation. Jesus says it, you do it. And Jesus is teaching this man that the kingdom of heaven must supersede every earthly tie. There can be nothing that rises higher than allegiance to King Jesus. And he says, allow the dead to bury their own dead. That's a tough phrase. Because how can, like, what's going to happen? Is a mummy going to come up out of the ground to bury his dad once he, he dies? Is that what he's... Let the dead bury their dead? Is he saying, just allow your father's carcass to rot on the side of... The, I don't know. The best commentary on this seems to be to allow the spiritually dead to bury those who physically die. You get busy following me. There will be people who can bury your father who are not interested in obeying, in being part of the kingdom. Allow the spiritually dead to bury the physically dead. Ultimately, this man, this second man who follows Jesus, illustrates the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 8. That there was seed which fell among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with the worries and riches and pleasures of this life. And they bring no fruit to maturity. Following Jesus? Yes, that's what I want to do. But. Two very distinct stories. The scribe in the kind of hesitant family man. Scribe full of pride. The family man kind of worried about obligations. But even though they're two distinct stories, they communicate one radical truth. That Jesus deserves our wholehearted obedience. And that for all disciples, sacrifice is necessary. It's necessary. Last week, we closed right after... uh, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law with this theme of suffering and sacrifice. It says that uh, he took our weaknesses, he carried our diseases. And while it's true that only Jesus suffers vicariously for others, this story in verses 18 through 22 underlines the fact that disciples suffer too because we're identified with him. How can a Christian A little Christ not sacrifice anything when the act to make us Christians was the most ultimate act of sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice is he asking you to make? I don't know. It's different for everyone. You have your own choose your own adventure novel. Turn to this page. Turn to that page. Consider Jesus' experience. He was rejected by Judea. He was cast out by Galilee. Gadara begs him to leave. Samaria refuses him lodging. And in John 16, 2, we're told that there will come a day when people will think they are doing God a favor by killing his followers. He's promised that for some, there will be tremendous sacrifice that is involved. 
Maybe he's not asking you to sell all that you have. Maybe he's just asking you to go camping for a little while. It's not that all sacrifices are the same. It is that all are expected to sacrifice. And what we see, and I think a very beautiful way, Jesus as a masterful, sovereign teacher and Lord practices what 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, and to be patient with all. When a man who is prideful and willful comes to Jesus, what does he do? With the use of a proverb, he admonishes the unruly. But when there is a man who obviously is interested in following and struggling with the variety of commitments he has in his life, what does he do? He encourages the faint-hearted. He says, come on, follow me. You don't need to worry about your dad. Your dad will be okay. Someone will take care of him. So what we see that Jesus does is he absolutely squashes Mr. Prideful. And he summons Mr. Weak. What I find most sad in this story is that both of these would-be disciples are never heard from again. Like the first man, when Jesus makes his call, we don't hear from the second man ever again. This reminds us of the truth. It says this, The saddest road to hell is the one that runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, and through the middle of warnings and invitations. You see, the options here are not, do I just want to be a normal Christian or do I want to be a disciple? No. The, the options are discipleship, sacrifice, and following Christ, or hell. What a tragedy for these men to get so close to the, the narrow road. To find the small gate and to peer over it and go, no, that's not what I want. Heading to hell, even though warned and invited by the Lord himself. So friends, this morning, Jesus wants you to be his disciple. That calling is not cheap. You don't find it on the clearance rack at Walmart. It's not in the back of the store at Aldi. There's no two-for-one coupon that you can clip. He says, all who would follow me must deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. So no matter how long ago you walked the aisle, no matter how many decades it's been since you prayed the prayer, don't disregard discipleship as a small thing. It's important. And so my question for you, whether you have been on the rolls of this church for many years, or whether perhaps you find yourself in a new place of worship this morning, what is it this day? that keeps you from following Christ? Are you worried somebody's going to think you're weird? 
Are you worried that Jesus is going to make you do something you really don't want to do? Are you afraid it's going to cost you too much? You see, it's not just the issue of possessions and paternity. There, this is not an exhaustive lesson. There are other things that keep people from Christ. The question is, do you know it? Because as we look at the picture of the king that Matthew paints for us, this portrait of Jesus' teaching and now this display of his power, Jesus' power not only over sickness, but he also has power over the terms that he sets for his disciples. And so the question for you this morning is, are you following? Let's pray. God, just like with these two men, when we come to worship, we hear your word. We hear your summons. We hear your call. We hear your rebuke. Will we be like the men who walk away without a word? Who are never heard from again? Or will we allow your spirit to convict us, to bring repentance, to bring obedience, to bring renewed vigor, to bring energy to do the things that we don't even think that we can do, but we, 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 we wonder what it is that you've called us to. So God, this day, whether there are those in our midst that need to follow him for the first time, or whether there are those among us that need to follow him for the 41st time, to renew our commitment, God, you are deserving of our wholehearted obedience. We marvel at your power displayed in your miracles and in your summons. And we thank you that by your spirit, you give us the ability to respond. Work your way in us now. Lord Jesus, we pray.